4: On this episode of Newt's World, I thought given everything that's happening with COVID-19 and all the concerns about vaccines, it would really be fascinating to look at a time when there was an enormous breakthrough. One of the greatest breakthroughs in public health in the 20th century involved polio. Polio was a paralyzing disease, mostly affecting children. And in some ways, COVID-19 and polio present similar challenges. Like polio, COVID-19 is a highly contagious virus that can be deadly. But while COVID-19 enters the lungs through airborne particles, polio enters the body through the gastrointestinal tract, often through contaminated water. In 1921, the most famous polio victim, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, contracted polio. By the 1950s, polio had become one of the most serious communicable diseases among children in the United States. In 1946, President Harry Truman, who had served with President Roosevelt, declared polio a threat to the United States and called on Americans to do everything possible to combat it. Now listen to President Truman's comments.
2: The fight against infantile paralysis cannot be a local war. It must be nationwide. It must be total for every city, town, and village throughout the land. For only with a united front. Can we ever hope to win any war? Now, despite
4: Truman's appeal, by 1952, nearly 60,000 people were infected with the virus. In 1952, over 3,000 children died. Hospitals set up special units with iron lung machines to keep polio victims alive, and children of all socioeconomic levels were left paralyzed. Now, it was this period that Dr. Jonas Salk and his research team at the University of Pittsburgh launched the largest human vaccine trial in history, injecting nearly 2 million American kids with a potential vaccine. And on April 12, 1955, they released the first successful vaccine for polio. By 1979, the United States reported its last case of the paralyzing virus. first major polio epidemic in the U.S. hit Vermont in 1894 with 132 cases. And it was fairly dormant. It was not seen as a big problem. But in 1916, there was a much bigger outbreak in New York City with over 27,000 cases and 6,000 deaths. Now, remember, this is a period where we don't actually yet know what a virus is. And when people don't have much ability to cope with it, it's one of the reasons that two years later, the Spanish flu epidemic will be so terrifying because we don't have the kind of science you and I live with today. Gradually, the polio epidemic spread. and would come back again and again. And the 1952 polio epidemic was the worst outbreak in American history. There were 58,000 cases reported that year. Remember, this is a much smaller country in population in 1952. 3,145 people died. 21,269 were left with mild to disabling paralysis. And most of the victims were children, which really, I think, tugged at the heart and made people really determined to find something to do. In fact, between 1951 and 54, there was an average of 16,316 polio cases every year. And there were 1,879 deaths from polio every year. So polio was a very big deal to people. It was seen as terrifying. People weren't sure they should allow their children, for example, to go out and swim because it clearly had some kind of waterborne relationship. Once the vaccine was introduced, it had an amazing drop. It went down to less than 1,000 cases in 1962. And after that, it was consistently below 100 cases. I think that the period that we're talking about, everybody was aware of it. I was a child growing up. We realized that polio was an enormous problem, and people would really worry about For example, whether you go swimming in the local creek. I was living in Hummelstown, Pennsylvania. We had a small stream, sweat creek out back. People weren't sure whether or not it was healthy to go there. They preferred to go down to Hershey Park where they had chlorinated water and where they had a sense that, you know, you were safer. I've had several friends who had polio and who survived it, but who had challenges either with walking or with their legs. It was something which left them the rest of their life. Slightly weaker in terms of their ankles or their legs. And by the way, one of the people who ends up getting polio is Mitch McConnell, who gets a relatively mild version. His mother takes great care of him. He writes about it in his memoir, The Long Game, and said that if she had not paid attention every single day, massaged his legs, helped him get out of bed, he probably would have been bound in a wheelchair, but instead, he gradually, slowly recovered. A great explanation of some of the discipline he has and some of the toughness he has. Remember, you can end up spending your life in an iron lung. In fact, one of the things I always used to try to get people to think about in terms of the power of curing diseases rather than simply managing them is, you know, imagine how much money we have saved and how much human misery we've saved through the polio vaccine. And in fact, you don't think about iron lungs today. Growing up in the 50s and 60s, I didn't actually know anybody who was in an iron lung Ironically, though, since I had grown up in central Pennsylvania surrounded by the Amish, the last naturally occurring case of polio in the U.S. was in 1979, and it was an outbreak among the Amish in several states, including in Pennsylvania. And I think that was the last straw, and finally, everybody basically took the vaccine and polio disappeared. There's been a worldwide effort to get rid of polio. The Western Hemisphere was declared free of polio in 1994, There are a handful of countries that still have some polio outbreaks, but only three polio endemic countries remain, countries that never stopped the transmission of wild polio virus. That's Afghanistan, Nigeria, and Pakistan. And there are ongoing efforts in all three of those countries to track down and eliminate the last of the virus so that the entire planet will be basically free of polio. This was an extraordinary breakthrough. And it starts, in many ways, with Dr. Jonas Salk.
1: The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow The Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.
3: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
0: Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
3: Ah, If you dare,
4: Dr. Jonas Salk he was born in 1914 in New York City. He's the oldest of three sons to Russian Jewish immigrants, Daniel and Dora Salk. And Salk talked about his childhood and how his mother's overprotectiveness shaped him. I think
2: that's worth listening to Salk himself. I got along with my classmates, uh, but I I was not as sociable a child in the sense of socializing. I could spend time by myself, uh, and uh, I still do. Uh, So the capacity to spend time alone uh, was something that I look back upon as having... Uh, perhaps contributed to this kind of introspection. Uh, And uh, I would say that I spent more time alone than I did in these uh, social settings, so to speak. And part of this was probably attributed to my mother's overprotectiveness. And uh, lest I get hurt or hurt myself or be injured in some way. And so how much of this is innate, how much of this came about through that kind of nurturing, I can't say.
4: He was the first member of his family to attend college. It's interesting because that was an America where people really worked hard, wanted their children to get ahead, and Saul going to college was a major breakthrough. Now, in Saul's case, he at first thought he was going to be a lawyer, but then he got interested in science. I think he was deeply shaped by the fact, and had a sense of obligation, by the fact that he was the first of his family to go to college and what that led to. So. Again, let's listen to Salk himself talk about
2: his life. My mother's children, father's children, were the first of their respective generations that went on to college. So there was something special in the household that was very nurturing for, uh, shall we say, advancing in the world, getting ahead. But whether it was in business or in law or in medicine, so to speak, was not of great concern. I believe that this is part of our nature and part of an ancestral heritage. That's how we got to be where we are.
4: So was thinking about a career in law, but his mother said he would never succeed in the courtroom since he couldn't even win an argument against her. And I think that must have been pretty convincing to him because he decided, you know, he didn't have to argue in science, and so he switched from pre-law to pre-med. It's funny to listen to Salk himself talk about what happened to his ambitions and the dramatic impact of his mother.
2: At some point, I recall uh, having the ambition to study law, to be elected to Congress, and to try to make just laws. Uh, But uh, I didn't pursue the study of the law uh, for a curious reason. Uh, My mother didn't think I'd make a very good lawyer and I believe that her reasons were that I couldn't really win an argument with her. At least this is my way of expressing it. And so this change took place between leaving high school and entering college because I think I ended college enrolled as a pre-law student. but I changed to pre-med uh, after I went through some soul searching as to what I would do, other than to study law, and uh, her preference was that I should be a teacher. Well, that didn't appeal to me, Uh, and when I decided to study medicine, I was sufficiently interested in the science, and I began to think about the scientific aspect of medicine, and my intention was to go to medical school and to become a medical scientist. I did not intend to practice medicine.
4: Salk really was interested in studying medicine, but his original desire about studying the law was based on the same principle. Could he help mankind, but somehow as a lawyer, could he help with the rule of law? And I think it's worth listening to Salk tell us why he initially cared about the law, because it tells you something about his deep commitment to helping people.
2: This is all linked to my original ambition, or desire, uh, which was to be of some help to humankind, so to speak, in a larger sense than just on a one-to-one basis, just as I intended to study law, to make just laws. So I found myself interested now in the laws of nature, as distinct from the laws that people make
4: having been convinced by his mother that he couldn't out-argue her so he wouldn't be a good lawyer. He then earned his medical degree from New York University School of Medicine in 1939. In 1942, he went to the University of Michigan on a research fellowship under the direction of Dr. Thomas Francis. The pair worked toward the development and implementation of an effective influenza vaccine for the U.S. military in the middle of World War II. Remember that if you are the military and you've been through the Spanish flu in 1918, 1919, which was devastating in the military bases and where lots and lots of young men were living in the same barracks, infecting each other. You never again wanted to have that kind of experience. So the military actually was a very major driver of biological and medical research because it saw a healthier military as a key to victory. And it recognized that if you could save people from a variety of things, whether it was dying for lack of penicillin or it was dying from the flu, that uh, every person you saved strengthened your side. So as a purely practical thing, the military invested heavily in a lot of research and a lot of production of new breakthroughs in medicine. When Salk was done with his fellowship at the University of Michigan, he turned his attention to poliovirus. He wanted to create an effective and safe vaccine, and he began his work at the University of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. The University of Pittsburgh was a very major institution with very substantial resources, and in 1947, two years after the war, Salk was appointed director of the Virus Research Lab at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Now, a lot of his colleagues did not think it was possible, and they didn't think that he was going to make a breakthrough, but Salk decided to change the approach to the polio vaccine very dramatically. He wanted to use the same approach he used earlier when working on influenza. Uh, That was very different than the vaccine development that was already established and widely used. At the time, the established model of vaccine development was first to isolate a live but weakened microorganism. This weakened virus or bacteria would then be administered to patients in order to create a low-grade innocuous infection that would confer long-standing immunity. In other words, the idea was that if I got you to be a little bit sick, that your own response would be to develop a dramatically greater resistance to the actual disease. But Salk had employed a very different approach when he worked on the influenza vaccine for the U.S. Army. He had used a non-infectious killed virus to induce protective immunity. In other words, he took literally dead virus, but the existence of the pattern of the virus seemed to trigger the immune system now that's a real breakthrough from the way they have been approaching it. and here is what salk said when he was explaining why he decided to use an inactivated virus instead of a weakened virus in the polio vaccine
2: it was not necessary to run the risk of infection which would have been the case if one were to try to develop an attenuated or weakened poliovirus vaccine. And so it seemed to me the safer and more certain way to proceed, that if we could inactivate the virus, uh, that we could move on to a vaccine very quickly, whereas if you worked only with weakened virus, you'd have to demonstrate its safety eventually. So that was the reasoning, and it was, there was a principle that was involved. You might say a scientific principle, a fundamental principle, um, choosing and preferring that which, the safety which you could control, and the quantities which you could use. So that this is in a way a more scientific approach, trying to work like nature instead of imitating nature.
4: Now This was a real break, because remember, all these other folks had invested psychologically and they'd invested their careers and their prestige in a particular approach, which involved having the virus still alive, but in a weakened form. Salk is coming along saying, no, no, that's wrong. What you want to do is have a dead virus, which will still trigger the immune response. And he got a lot of criticism. But here's what Salk said as he responded to that criticism on the way to developing the polio vaccine.
2: I just plowed on. Uh, hurt is one thing, being deterred is another thing. And so, while uh, we prefer uh, to have an open path, uh, one thing you learn in life is that there's no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> there's no way that everybody is going to agree, and particularly if you go against the mainstream. And since everyone at that time had already been had their minds set on how they thought the problem ought to be dealt with, whether it was influenza or poliomyelitis or now even the work on AIDS. That's a characteristic of how what I like to call the evolutionary process proceeds. The contradiction is in your assertion. You say scientists who have, have a bent to help mankind, that's not what their objective is. If that was their objective, they might approach it somewhat differently. And so you must, you see, you project your own perception of what a scientist is like or what he should do, what you'd expect him to do. But you soon find out that that's not necessarily the case. And that the motivation that drives us to do what we do is different in each of us. And then you begin to understand From the effect that's produced, what is the person's real motivation?
4: Now, Salk was not doing all this in isolation. Working at uh, the University of Pittsburgh, he'd written a number of scientific and theoretical articles on polio and his ideas for vaccine. These publications captured the attention of the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. This is something I remember vividly from my childhood. President Roosevelt created the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, and known as the March of Dimes. And their whole appeal was, wouldn't you give a dime to help defeat polio and to save children? And so they've raised a really pretty substantial amount of money out of the March of Dimes, and they provided significant support to Salk towards developing. To show you the dramatic difference in common sense, risk assessment, and willingness to do something to help people. Compare the current bureaucratic and rigid food and drug administration models and the passion about 10th level of safety with what Dr. Salk did. He found that he thought he had a vaccine that would work. And so he tested it in his own family. I mean, listen to his own son talking about him testing the first vaccine on his own family.
2: I just hated injections. And my father came home with polio vaccine uh, and some syringes and needles that he sterilized on the kitchen stove by boiling in water, uh, lined us kids up, and then administered the vaccine.
4: This is from Dr. Peter Salk, 76, who's a University of Pittsburgh professor of infectious diseases and microbiology and president of the Jonas Salk Legacy Foundation. He said, I was just not happy at the notion of having another shot. So here you have the kids in the family. Dad comes home and says, guess what we're going to do? According to Dr. Peter Salk, when his father came in, he said he hated the needle so much that he previously crouched and hid behind the kitchen wastebasket to avoid getting shot. Standing beside his two brothers, he braced for the injection. Two weeks later, they received a second dose which was photographed to generate publicity for the March of Dimes, which had put millions of dollars into polio research. As the younger Dr. Salt, Peter, said the point of that was to demonstrate my father's confidence in the vaccine, but it was also from my father's side my mother's side, let's get these kids protected. Now, imagine the level of confidence that says, I have this vaccine. I'm pretty sure it's going to work, so let me try it out on my kids, and the fact is it did work, and they went from there to steadily expanding opportunities to get more and more and more people tested something which would probably have taken a normal time with the modern food and drug administration many years and billions of dollars was done literally as a publicity campaign by the march of dimes and people were so eager for a, a cure that they just showed up it was a remarkable moment of citizenship and a remarkable moment of heroic achievement by Dr Salk. 1954, national testing began on a million children. Imagine this compared to the way we do things nowadays. They became known as the polio pioneers. People were so eager to get to a vaccine because they were so frightened that their children would end up either dying or being crippled for life, that there was a huge response. And by April of 1955, the results were very clear. The vaccine was safe and effective. The two years before the vaccine was widely available, the average number of polio cases in the US was more than 45,000. By 1962, that number had dropped to 910. Now think about that. From 45,000 a year to 900 a year. What an astonishing breakthrough in public health. Think about how many lives were saved, how many people were not in iron lungs, how many people were not spending years of their life recovering. It truly was a miraculous moment in human history in terms of the health of the average person. When the vaccine was accepted, licenses were issued, vaccination campaigns were launched, much of what you're seeing today with COVID-19. By 1957, remember that this first big test is 1954, the results are announced in 1955. And by 1957, following mass immunizations, They were promoted by the March of Dimes. The March of Dimes had financed a lot of the research. They were now financing the publicity to get people to take the vaccine. And it began dropping dramatically. It went down almost immediately from 58,000 cases to 5,600 cases. Interestingly, compared to a lot of the current arguments about patents and making money and all that, Jonas Salk never patented the vaccine. He never earned any money from his discovery. He wanted to distribute it as widely as possible. Here's Dr. Salk talking about why he never patented the vaccine.
2: Who owns the patent on this vaccine? Well, the the people, I I would say. There is no patent. This is, could you patent the sun? (laughs) Now, it's funny because what
4: he was doing was, of course, being a maverick. He was off developing a protocol that most of his colleagues didn't believe in, that in fact repudiated their work. So even though it worked, and even though he saved an enormous number of lives, he was never given membership in the American Academy of Sciences, and he was never awarded the Nobel Prize because he didn't do it the right way for the establishment. And so the fact that he had saved literally thousands and thousands of lives, millions of lives by today, just didn't matter. But it didn't matter to him. He was famous, he had access to resources. In 1963, he founded the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in La Jolla, California, which I have visited. Those of you who have been in La Jolla and been in Pittsburgh understand exactly why he ended up opening the Salk Institute in La Jolla. It was a great place, and is still today, a remarkable research center. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1977. He spent his last years searching for a vaccine against AIDS. He's just stayed active. He's the kind of guy who wanted to go and do things. He wanted to be involved. He was fascinated by science and by the natural world. He died on June 23rd, 1995, at the age of 80, having contributed immensely to a better human race. Think about it. This guy, on his own, stubborn, following his own drummer, doing what he thought was right, saved literally hundreds of thousands of people, and was happy to have done so. Didn't end up being a billionaire, didn't end up having the Salk Pharmaceutical Company. Just kept researching. I want to tell you that Salk is somebody a lot more people should study, and he's a life a lot more people should follow. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Immortals, Dr. Jonas Salk. You can read more about the history of polio and its eradication from the United States on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendleton. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners at Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt World.
3: From BBC Radio 4.
0: No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.
3: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayya. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
0: Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fairs.